Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for July, August and September 2013, titled Revival and Reformation. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 8 for August 17-23, Discernment, the Safeguard of Revival. Sabbath afternoon, August 17. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open your word again and we're studying about revival. As we do so, we know that the Holy Spirit needs to be part of our lives, needs to be part of our connection with you. As we open your word, please may our hearts be open to your leading and your guiding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text for this week is... Psalm 119, verses 159 and 160. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Let's read that again. Psalm 119, verse 159 and 160. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Early in my ministry, I studied with a family in rural Tennessee. One day, a large man walked into the room smoking a big cigar. He then declared that the Lord had healed him from lung cancer. I had reflected upon this experience often. This man sincerely believed that the Holy Spirit had miraculously healed him. However, did his belief that he was healed make it true? Are signs and wonders always evidence of the Holy Spirit's working? Can we base our faith on signs and wonders alone? What role might signs and wonders have in a false revival? In the context of revival, we need to ask... Is it possible that the devil can create a false religious excitement and leave the impression that a genuine revival has occurred? This week, we will study the spiritual indicators of genuine revival and contrast them with the obvious signs of false ones. Knowing the difference between the two will help to save us from the enemy's delusions. Sunday, August 18. God's Will and His Word. All true spirituality is focused on knowing God and doing His will. We read about that in John chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And in Hebrews 10:7, Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Any so-called revival that focuses on experience rather than commitment to obey God's word misses the mark completely. The Holy Spirit will never lead us where God's word does not. The Holy Spirit leads us into the word, as we read in 2 Timothy 3. The word of God is the foundation and heart of all true revival. 
Question. What do the following passages in Psalm 119 reveal about revival and God's Word? List all the spiritual qualities that God's Word develops in our lives. What do these promises mean in practical terms in our experience with the Lord? First of all, we start with Psalm 119, verse 25. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. And verse 28. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And verses 49 and 50. And they read, Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. And verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And verse 81. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. And verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And verse 116, and that reads, Sustain me, my God, according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. And verse 130, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And finally, verse 154, Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. In Jesus' sermon with the bread of life, he explained the essence of all revival and the foundation of all spiritual life. He declared, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. John 6.63 Jesus' statement is extremely significant. The Holy Spirit, who is the source of all spiritual revival, speaks through God's Word in order to give to those who grasp it by faith a deep spiritual life. Revival occurs when the Holy Spirit impresses Jesus' words upon our minds. This is why the Saviour said in Matthew 4.4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Ellen White writes in The Great Controversy, page 464, In many of the revivals which have occurred during the last half century, the same influences have been at work, to a greater or less degree, that will be manifest in the more extensive movements of the future. There is an emotional excitement, a mingling of the true with the false, that is well adapted to mislead. Yet none need be deceived. In the light of God's word, it is not difficult to determine the nature of these movements. Whenever men neglect the testimony of the Bible, turning away from those plain, soul-testing truths which require self-denial and renunciation of the world, there we may be sure that God's blessing is not bestowed. End of quote. The essence of true revival is discovering God's will as manifest in God's word. Jesus lived a life filled with the Holy Spirit. From his birth to his death, he was led and empowered by the Holy Spirit.
Monday, August 19, God's Love and His Law. Revival is all about knowing Jesus. It is a reawakening of the spiritual faculties of the soul. It is a personal and vital experience with the Saviour. Knowing Jesus, really knowing Him as a friend, is the essence of all revival. From the depth of his personal experience with Jesus, the Apostle Paul shared that he is praying for the Ephesians to, as he records in Ephesians 3.19, know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is in contrast to the story of the end-time virgins, five of whom had an outer form of godliness and religion, but lacked an intimate experience with Jesus. Referring to their great need, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five twelve, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Knowing God always leads to obedience. God's law reveals his love. A deeper relationship with Christ leads to a greater desire to please Christ. Obedience is the fruit of love. The more we love Him, the more we will desire to obey Him. Any so-called revival that does not emphasize repentance for the times that we have willfully broken His law is suspect. Religious fervor may stimulate a temporary religious high, but lasting spiritual change will be lacking. Question. For the Apostle John, what are the evidences that one really knows God? Well, we're referred to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, and truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And verses 20 and 21. And that reads, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. In these passages, John makes two crucial points. First, knowing God leads to keeping his commandments. Second, loving God leads to loving one another. John's point is clear. Genuine spirituality results in a changed life. The heart of revival is not a warm sensation of feeling close to Jesus. It is a transformed life filled with the joy of serving Jesus. God's great goal in all revivals is to draw us closer to Him, to deepen our surrender to His purpose for our lives, and to release us for witness and ministry in His cause. 
So to finish the day, how are you in your own personal relationships? What do those relationships tell you about your own walk with the Lord? In what ways might you need to progress in both your relationship with God and with others? Tuesday, August 20. Formalism, Fanaticism and Faith One of the challenges of true revival is breaking through the icy surface of cold formalism while at the same time avoiding the fiery flames of fanaticism. Formalism is rigidly locked in the status quo. It is satisfied with the external husks of religion while it denies the living reality of faith. Fanaticism tends to go to extremes. It goes off on religious tangents. It tends to be unbalanced, focusing on one aspect of faith to the neglect of all others. Fanaticism is often self-righteous and judgmental. The Apostle Paul longed that the Christian church, as he writes in Ephesians 4.14, no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Question. What do we learn about cold formalism in Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees? First of all, we look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then in Luke chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And Mark chapter 7, verses 5 to 9. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, This people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. Question. What do we learn about those who thought that signs and wonders proved that they were Jesus' faithful followers? Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Question. 
The deeper issue in both these experiences is the commitment of the heart. Signs and wonders can never take the place of authentic biblical faith. They are not substitutes for surrendering to the will and word of God. The essence of real revival is a faith so deep that it leads to an obedient life that is committed to do God's will. A biblically based revival echoes John's words, as in 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Ellen White writes in Reflecting Christ, page 21, What kind of faith is it that overcomes the world? It is that faith which makes Christ your own personal Saviour, that faith which, recognising your helplessness, your utter inability to save yourself, takes hold of the Helper who is mighty to save as your only hope. So to finish today, which side do you tend to lean toward? Formalism and tradition, or experience and excitement? If perhaps you lean too much toward one side or the other, how can you find the right balance? Wednesday, August 21, Ministry and Miracles False revivals often place their major emphasis on miracles. Genuine revivals focus on ministry. False revivals emphasize spectacular signs and wonders. Genuine revivals recognize that the greatest miracle is a changed life. The healing miracles of Jesus testify to the fact that he was the Messiah. As our compassionate Redeemer, the Saviour was concerned with alleviating human suffering. But he was even more concerned with the salvation of everyone whom he touched with his healing grace. The purpose of Jesus' redemptive ministry was to seek and save the lost humankind, he said in Luke 19.10. Speaking to the religious leaders regarding the paralytic, Jesus declared, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house, in Matthew 9, 6. The crowd's response to this miracle was, in verse 9, to glorify God. Miracles were an outgrowth of Jesus' redemptive ministry, but they were not the main reason he came to earth. Question. What can we learn from these texts about how people can be deceived in the last days? First of all, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all the unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 11 to 13. Then many false prophets will arise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end 
shall be saved. And verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. These people are deceived by false miracles because they did not receive the love of the truth, as it says in Scripture. When the desire for the spectacular is far more important than the desire for a new life in Christ, the mind is open to deception. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus concludes with Jesus' insightful words. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Luke 16.31 In other words, Spectacular signs and marvellous wonders can never take the place of understanding and then following God's word. Obedience to God is primary. Signs and wonders, if and when they come, are always only secondary. So to finish today, what kind of miracles have you experienced in your own life, in your walk with the Lord? What have you learned from them? How important are they to your faith? Thursday, August 22. Fruits and Gifts. Question. What are some of the prime reasons that God gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit to His Church? Well, first of all, we look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 8. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches, in teaching. He who exhorts, in exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. 
the gifts of the Holy Spirit may be divided into two large categories. Some gifts are qualities, other gifts are callings. For example, the gifts of helps, hospitality, exhortation and teaching are qualities that God imparts to individual believers. The gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor-teachers are callings given to individual believers. Both categories serve a similar purpose. They have been imparted by the Holy Spirit to strengthen the spiritual life of the Church and equip it for mission. Spiritual gifts are not an end in themselves. They have been given by God for the benefit of the Church. Question. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he uses the expression walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5.16? Read Galatians 5, verses 22 to 25, and list each fruit that comes from walking in the Spirit. Also have a look at John 15, verses 1 to 7. First of all, Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And verses 22 to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And then John chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Any so-called revival that has little interest in the fruit of the Spirit, but is obsessed with possessing the gifts of the Spirit, is dangerous. If God gave the gifts of the Spirit in abundance to believers who were not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, the Church would become the centre of selfish exhibitionism. For God to turn on heaven's power when the spiritual power lines are frayed would produce only disastrous results. Beware of movements that concentrate on the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit rather than on obedience to God's will and a transformed character that reveals the fruit of the Spirit. So, to finish today, what do you say to someone who has experienced what he or she judges to be a supernatural manifestation from God? How can you help him or her to know if it truly were from God or from the other side? How does our understanding of the reality of the great controversy help us when we seek to understand who or what can be behind miracles?
Friday, August 23. From the book Christ Object Lessons, page 328, we read, The promise of the Spirit is not appreciated as it should be. Its fulfillment is not realized as it might be. It is the absence of the Spirit that makes the gospel ministry so powerless. Learning, talents, eloquence, every natural or acquired endowment may be possessed. But without the presence of the Spirit of God, no heart will be touched, no sinner will be won to Christ. On the other hand, if they are connected with Christ, if the gifts of the Spirit are theirs, the poorest and most ignorant of his disciples will have a power that will tell upon hearts. God makes them the channel for the outworking of the highest influence in the universe. And from the same author, the Acts of the Apostles, page 388. The Apostles' earnest words of entreaty were not fruitless. The Holy Spirit wrought with mighty power, and many whose feet had wandered into strange paths returned to their former faith in the gospel. Henceforth they were steadfast in the liberty wherewith Christ had made them free. In their lives were revealed the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. The name of God was glorified, and many were added to the number of believers throughout that region. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell more on the contrast between cold formalism and unbridled fanaticism, or are they always in contrast? That is, could a church be fanatical and coldly formal at the same time? If so, how might that be manifest? Why would either extreme or both be detrimental to revival and reformation? What about your own local church? Where does it stand in this area? How could you help it to find the right balance? 2. What evidence, if any, can we see of false revivals going on in the world? How can we know that they are false? On the other hand, would it be wrong to believe that God is working a revival among those who, though loving the Lord, don't know the things that we do? 3. In class, go over your answer to Thursday's question regarding someone who thinks that he or she has had a supernatural experience with God. What can you learn from each other's answers. Inside Story, our mission story for this week. It's titled, Mila's Prayers. Mila is six years old, but already she's a prayer warrior. She prays for people until God answers. One day at school, Mila saw her teachers outside during their break smoking cigarettes. Mila knows that smoking is dangerous, so right there she prayed for them. Dear Jesus, she said, please help my teachers know that smoking is bad for them. Help them to stop smoking before it makes them sick. Amen. That evening, when Father arrived home, he saw Mila sitting on the couch with her head bowed. He wondered if something was wrong. He touched her and asked if she was okay. Mila looked up and said, I'm fine. I'm just praying for my teachers. They smoke, and I don't want them to get sick. Daddy knew about Mila's prayer ministry. He sat down beside her and asked, 
Would you pray for a woman at work? She smokes too. Mila smiled and bowed her head. She prayed for Daddy's friend at work and for her teachers. Mila kept praying for her teachers and her father's friend every day. Several weeks later, Daddy came home from work and told Mila that his friend at work had stopped smoking. The woman told him that one day she had suddenly lost her desire to smoke and didn't smoke ever again. Daddy knew that the woman had tried to stop smoking many times before, but she had failed. What day did you stop smoking? he asked. The woman thought for a minute and then told him the date. That was the day my daughter started praying for you, he said. Daddy told the woman that Mila was praying that she would stop smoking. She was surprised that a child's prayer could help her to stop smoking when nothing else could. My teachers still smoke, Mila said, and I'm still praying for them. Sometimes I tell them that smoking is bad for them and that I'm concerned about them. I've told them that I'm praying for them. My teacher says that she wants to stop smoking, Mila added. I'm sure God will answer my prayers. God answers our prayers, but he never forces someone to do something against their wishes. When we pray for others, God works in their hearts and in ours to answer those prayers. When we pray that people will meet God and accept Jesus' love, we must be willing to help make that happen if God calls us. Our mission offerings help to provide tools to lead others to Christ, no matter where they are. Thank you for giving so that others can meet God. This week's reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Your reader has been Dr. Percy Harold. Remember, God is always faithful. Faithful.